Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Welcome to the Sparks Anniversary Special. What a thrill it is to be here with you to celebrate our two-year anniversary. What an amazing ride it has been. So awesome to share with you all the inspiration and motivation, all the different things that can help you truly to bring your life to the next level. It's been an amazing journey, and thank you so much for your support, for being a part of our NOCO FM family, Thank you for your support and the emails, just all the love coming through to the spark. It's been phenomenal. So tonight, I'm so excited to share with you clips from some of the interviews that truly lit me up and sparked inspiration in me. And I got so much feedback that it also helped ignite so many other people's lives. So we put it all together here tonight for you as we celebrate this very special two-year marker and look forward to a third year of bringing you the very best in motivation, inspiration, things to heal your heart and soul and help you feel like you can take your life wherever you want to take it to help you be the best that you can be and ignite your best life. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. We start our anniversary special with award-winning comedian Alicia Datner. I love this interview because Alicia brings her soulful, playful, amazing spirit to the art of comedy. Insightful and poignant, Alicia helps us understand the messiness that comes with life and helps us learn that you just gotta laugh. On Life Stand, I love that. Tell me about how you came up with the name. How did I come up with the name? I was doing my India show and I... I had a show called Eat, Pray, Laugh about traveling in India and, you know, finding myself, discovering myself. But it turns out I was there at home all the time. I didn't need to go to India to figure it out. And I wrote the subtitle was Jewish Princess Seeks Indian Guru for One Life Stand. (laughs) I love that. And I don't know. I just love I love taking cliches and twisting them. It's like my favorite thing to do. So. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm often interested in talking about sexuality and the kind of pun of one night stand. But that like what I'm really seeking is like a one life stand. And I love how it the word stand refers to stand up and the first to sexuality and also yet yeah, and it refers to reincarnation and actually really wanting like a full life commitment, but not longer than one life. And so it's, it's I love that phrase. It embodies all of it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you have, how do you interweave for yourself? I mean, I guess everyone's always curious, like how do comedians come up with material? Tell me about, tell me Um, a little bit about your motivation. And I just get to a place where I feel like I have something. Honestly, I'm just frustrated about something. (laughs) It all comes from, I wish things were different. And underneath that is like a vision of what's possible. I think it's like, living in that space of if it were heaven on earth, this is how life would be. This is what, how things should be. This is my sense of justice and fairness and fulfillment and what we, 
you know, and in both for me, but also in a benevolent way. Like I want everybody, I think this is how life should work. And then when I constantly encounter, and I think, you know, we all constantly encounter things that are not the way we want them to be, which is par for the course of being human in a body. I just have to express my frustration about it. And it's not funny. It's just, here's what I really think and feel. And I'm pretty serious about it. And because I take that frustration seriously, but also hold it, I, it's like I'm holding myself up as an example of a human to laugh at. Does that make sense? Like I'm showing the human experience and I'm going, this is pretty funny how we do this thing, isn't it? And then people laugh in recognition. People exactly. laugh in, I get that. Yeah. I mean, I, I know as watching yourself, it's like we see ourselves in you. Yeah. You're just expressing well, all of our human experience, right? This, this yeah. kind of collective human bumbling through and yeah. Yeah. If you want to meet someone who will truly light you up and spark up your life, that would be Solomon Masala. Solomon is an entrepreneur and a rhythm leader. He is one of those people that the moment that you meet him, you are just lit up. He brings such a great message and such a depth of understanding. What a soulful individual that I had the privilege of having here in Fort Collins with us when Solomon came and was one of our presenters at the Spark Summit this last October. A true light in our world and someone who really is teaching us how we can join together and make beautiful music. How can music and sound move us to greater connection? Mm, what a beautiful question. First, I think I would refer back to something I said earlier about that expression of rhythm being so innate to human beings. And, you know, whenever, whenever I do a workshop or a program, there, there's usually three to five people who will come up and they have that face and they say, you know, I'm, I'm just not rhythmic at all. I, I can't carry a rhythm. And I just smile and I say, all right, you're in the right place. You can't get it wrong. And I'll prove to you that you actually can. And of course, by the end, they're totally jamming. I, when I say it's innate to us, I truly do believe that. I haven't met any human being in the thousands and thousands of human beings that I've worked with that doesn't have rhythm. We all have it. And so it's an innate way for us to express. So in that sense of connection with the divine, one of the things that I love about music making and, and rhythm in particular is we get out of our heads. And as soon as that happens, our whole being can open up to a deeper connection to something that's greater than ourselves, whether that's just experiencing that sense of connection to my neighbor or to the circle uh, with whom I'm drumming, or just tapping into the deeper sense of, of emotional expression that can happen when I'm not thinking. And to me, that's the space, that's that opening space that allows that feeling of connection to something greater, to all that is, and to the divine, to have some space to happen. Um, so I, I think that's the, that's the entry there. Is th there have been obviously numerous studies done on rhythm and the physiology and the, the, the powers that it has. But there's a reason that for many, many centuries, um, shaman, med medicine people, those who are bringing healing, have used a percussion instrument or many as a way to have that connection happen. It's beautiful. It, it, I love that. It's like you get yourself out of the way 
And then you just become a conduit for that divine spirit just to come through you and then just manifest through this wonderful rhythm and wonderful connective sound. Absolutely. And then, of course, you're creating the vibrations and the vibrations create coherence. And those frequencies take us to other conscious awareness places and tap into the subconscious. So, yes. Oh, my gosh. I, I love this. I, I can't wait to start drumming. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one of my one of my. I shouldn't say it, but hidden agendas is that there are more drums and more people drumming on the planet. I think it'd be good for us. Heck yes. Want more gratitude, creativity, presence, and joy in your life? Then listen to this amazing excerpt with Gabriella Masala. Gabriella is an author, consultant, and facilitator. She teaches us about how to have this every day that's magnificent. She is truly a light. What a beautiful, beautiful soul. Just speaking with her, the moment that I began speaking with her, I felt a connection with her, and that was ignited as well when she was here with her husband, Solomon, in October for the Spark Summit. The moment she walked to the door, we were so connected, soul sisters at the heart, and she shares her beautiful, beautiful message with us here. So much. So that's so true. So beautiful. Yes, yes. And, and then how to continuously shift our attention. It really is a rewiring, right? And a deprogramming because so much I know for myself, even feeling really plugged into the source my whole life, I've had to really work with deprogramming from um, all the many lies of separation is one way to call it all the many belief systems about, you know, we're matter in a world of matter, not true. We are energy in a world of energy. Again, it's a perspective. So if I believe I'm matter in a world of matter, that's what I will experience. But to really tap into our unlimited nature, we have to do some deprogramming and some rewiring to be able to perceive and experience reality in this unlimited way. But it's always there. And then we have this, you know, amazing heart brain relationship this like figure eight of of love it too is is a um a love affair you know like it's not i don't want to leave my my mind behind that analytical mind has a place it has a role best as a devotee to the intelligence of the heart and yet i still have to work daily to remember you know oh look at how my analytical mind is just going into comparison judgment doubt measurement and bring attention back into the heart, bring attention back into that, that deep breath, that frequency of gratitude that just floods us with a higher vibration of being and perception. And, and it takes practice, you know, um, so that's, that's why we show up. That's the chop wood, carry water. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think that's such an essential message that people, you know, I, I hear that in my private practice and my office, people will say, well, when do I get it? Like, when do I arrive? And, you know, there's never the point of arrival. And you so beautifully talked about how, you know, we, we constantly, it's like we're constantly showing up and we have to constantly show up, whether it's the deep breath or just waking up to the moment that's important. And then it's, it's part of our journey. It's this continued, you know, it's not about perfection. It's not about, oh, now I'm a perfect person. So I never have my ego come in or I never have the analytical mind start comparing or judging, but that that's part of our human experience. Right. And so 
to tap back into that we can continue to choose and open up this deeper place that that we can actually nurture and grow mm-hmm. yes within and us and without us yeah we can dwell there more you know so there are definitely those those moments with with practice over time, the chopping wood and carrying water becomes more simple and seamless and graceful and enjoyable and delightful. So that now some of the biggest things that used to challenge me, I go in with a smile and a deep breath. I'm like, yay, another initiation. Or sometimes the little, you know, the potency is like no life is going to be without suffering. But how do we meet that suffering? How do we meet illness, disease, death? How do we meet the experience as part of the adventure and the honor and privilege of being alive in a body at this time on the earth? My interview with singer-songwriter Brian Johansson is special for many reasons. One is that just recently he became my future son-in-law when he asked my daughter Acacia to marry him at the end of a Sugar Britches concert, which is the band that he's in. If you haven't caught a Sugar Britches concert here in Fort Collins, Colorado, you definitely need to go check him out. Brian is such a special soul, not just because he's going to be my future son-in-law, although I'm thankful for that, but Brian really embraces this depth of honesty and integrity. His story just really has touched my heart, and I know it'll touch yours. I am curious, though, if if you're willing to share it with us, what was it that kind of woke you up? And kind of gave you the wake up call to like, I want to change my life. I want to do this differently so that then you could re, you know, recapture that passion yeah. of yours. Well, I mean, and you hear this a lot uh, from people who have who've sobered up and, and a lot of people do say, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, and basically where I was at, I mean, right before I sobered up, I ended up in, in the hospital I mean, my, my family members found me, my dad found me at home. I had been on like a two week bender. It was just a nightmare. And just to have uh, my family find me like that was really, really quite a shock just to be in the hospital for like a day. Uh, and then to go to a, you know, detox and, and suicide watch was, you know, kind of a <laughs> talk about uh, detoxing from that. I mean, you're kind of coming to, to terms with, Oh man, what have I done this time? And, and that, that was a pretty rough one for me. And just, uh, you know, I'd put my family through a lot and just uh, to put them through that was, it was a lot. And that was a pretty big wake up call. But also, uh, even during the kind of the detox phase of that, I was talking with a few uh, professionals in that center and they said, you know, something's got to change this time. And, and I came to terms with that with my family. I said, and then I said, this is what's going to have to change. Here's what I'm going to do. And. I need you to be okay with that. And and I had to set boundaries with them. They set some boundaries with me. And that was basically the, the, the foundation for that. And that was, that was actually a pretty huge step because uh, during that first uh, month to three months, even I did things a little bit differently with, with family members. I did it with differently with, uh, with uh, friends. Um, I was treading very lightly and then, I was also trying out things that I hadn't tried before, especially with, uh, with recovery and, um, trying not to talk as much and definitely trying to listen. Mm. And a, another big piece of advice I was given was, uh, be open to being open-minded and be willing to be willing. And of course I, I never realized, uh, 
how much I always thought I was right. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's been a huge realization for me too. It's yeah, it's, it's okay to say, I don't know how to do this. And I mean, the, the biggest, one of the biggest uh, and most powerful things I've learned through all this is, is it's okay to be able to come to terms with your limitations and your, and your weaknesses too. And to say that I have an absolute um, weakness for this <laughs> and I am powerless over it. So I need help and I need to stay away from it. And that's been, it's actually quite empowering. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, it just, I think how much courage it takes just to be able to say that, Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and, and where your ego's not hooked and you're not, you know, cause we all get our ego hooked and we yeah. do, we, we want to be able to like, oh, I can handle it. I can handle whatever. Yeah. And to be able to be at that place where you're admitting, no, I am powerless over this yeah. and I do need help. Yeah. I think that takes a lot of courage. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's the toughest thing. It, it was for me. That's, um, I think it, it can be for a lot of people too, but, and, and especially yet, you know, I think that's kind of the number one problem for most people is, is ego and, and not even understanding that sometimes. So. Right. Or how that gets hooked. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and a lot of people aren't even thinking about it. And, you know, a lot of the time I still don't think about it when, when I should be. So yeah, it's something that kind of should be on, on our mind maybe, but, but isn't always so. of listening. This was such a special episode with Tarek Monib. What an amazing soul, this creator and producer, entrepreneur. He shares in his film, Free Trip to Egypt, this awesome documentary about the remarkable experiment that he did in kindness and empathy and what happens when we move out of fear and drop into our hearts and can touch our commonalities, our compassion and the connection that we all share. Tarek's movie and his message give us hope for how we can live in a connected world where our differences don't have to make us distant, but that we can appreciate, learn, and understand one another when we just pledge to listen. Well, and, and so it's really interesting, and I'm a psychotherapist, so I, I deal with this a lot, and mm -hmm. understanding that, you know, we do, we have this mechanism in our brain Number one, we have a negativity bias. So it's always scanning the environment for anything that looks like a threat for us as a means of protection, right? I mean, to perpetuate the exactly. species. So we, we have to be sometimes intentional then. So we overcome this natural bias that anything different can seem as a threat. And so being intentional about choosing kindness and choosing love Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting because the analogy that comes to mind is, is horseback riding. I really love horseback riding, but I'm not very good at it. And what happens is as soon as um, I ride, if I feel fearful, I stiffen up. And then that's when you fall off. And it's the exact opposite that you need to do is to relax into it and go counter to the fear and actually just trust Right. And I think it's the same thing here with, with Americans um, that are fearful of, of Muslims. The more we feed the fear, the more we polarize each other and we stop using each other as allies because we are in it together. So yeah. if you don't, if you, if you fear me or I fear you, 
we're feeding this. And, and that's the whole point is to just go and use each other as allies. And it's, it redefined the borders between people of heart in whatever religion or dogma. And those are the new borders now. It's this whole interconnection of humanity that it's not us and them, that we all are one. If we can get to that place, like you were saying, with, with the horse experience, the fear might be your automatic response, but you can relax into this so that you can, you know, you, it's like breathing through the fear. And so you can be in your heart and you can relax and enjoy the experience so you can relax and be open to other people. Right. Exactly. Author, healer, and speaker Misa Hopkins, who had been featured on ABC, NBC, Fox News, Emotional Mojo, Spirituality and Health. She's an expert on helping us move into the root of all healing and truly transform our lives. I had no idea at the end of this interview that Misa would become one of my dearest friends and that we would forge what has continued to be just a beautiful relationship where we are now co-authoring a book together and working together on her super summit that is coming in April, Women Emerging, Helping Women to Heal and End Sexual Abuse. I cannot even tell you how special this woman is in my life and how special she is in this world. Her message is one of healing and hope and truly how to transform your life. It seems to me that we have these programs for happiness, and we oftentimes think that they are external to us. And as we find, it's actually an inside job. So one of the things that I really loved was the 10 most common negative beliefs, limiting beliefs. And as a cognitive behavioral therapist, that's something we really work on is trying to dispel the myth of these automatic thoughts and limiting beliefs that people have. So can you share a little bit about that, about what do you find are the most common limiting beliefs and how do they keep us from healing emotionally and physically? Thank you for asking that. You know, the uh, beating the odds, 10 beliefs that can short circuit your healing was a a PDF that I put together after listening to my clients. And they come to me usually for spiritual perspective. They, they know things are locked up and they're looking for where their connection to the divine is needing new perspective. And what I would hear them saying when we finally kind of got to it were things like, and this one's really common, talk about prayer because this is a big one that we've been taught as children to ask God for what we want. And what I came to learn by studying with my elders is that is a very young form of prayer. And we often get stuck there because no one's taught us a different way to pray, right? So we go to God the way that we go to our parents. And you want, when you're little, you want a new bike. So First, you try mom or dad, then you try the other parent, and you see if you can get what you want, if you can ask it just right on the right day and be a really good kid for a week. Week's a long time for a kid, a couple days, um, you know, that would be an eternity to get what I want. So we think that our relationship with God is about getting what we want. And if I pray just right, then it will happen. 
And we do that with our illnesses. We do that with our emotional stuckness. We do that with, I want to have more profound experiences in my own divinity. So then we form this belief that says, if I get it right, then maybe I'll get it. And here's the deal. You've got a 50-50 chance you're going to get it or not. And then when we don't get it, we get mad at God. Because I asked and I did all the right things. Why didn't you give it to me? Which is a very childlike way of praying. It's very different when you approach the divine, however you see the divine, by the way. And it has never mattered to me whether it's goddess or God or the unknowable or the path or the mystery. It's just how we connect with God. So I'm using the word God because that's the one I hear frequently. When we instead open up our hearts to the divine as love, pure love, all accepting love, we get to make our choices. There's no interference with those choices. There's no pushing us. There is simply opportunity. And we give ourselves permission to fall in love with that relationship of the divine within us and the divine outside of us. And we allow ourselves to see reflections. How much divine love is in me in this moment? And what is the world reflecting back to me about my awareness of how loved I am? Writer, producer, and transformational storyteller Leah Lamb is our next guest. Leah Lamb is one of those people that you just start talking to and you can't help but get energized because her energy is so contagious. And I'm happy to share some of that energy with you now. What is your definition of a sacred story? Mm, yeah, it's a good question for anyone to ask because nobody owns story, right? As human beings, we are all made of story. Um, you know, one of the things that I love is that, you know, the first word, you know, in the Bible, like the first word was word, you know, <laughs> you know or the powers in the word, you know, all the ancient religions agree that the world was sung, spoken, enchanted into existence. This is a key to uh, inform us humans unique role on this planet. We are all creators, you know, through our language. So coming back to what is a sacred story? And what is, what is it to be in relationship to how we use our language in a sacred way, right? It's, it's um, kind of a setup just because the second you say something is sacred, then you immediately say that something is not sacred, right? Mm -hmm. But let's, let's use sacred as a term that gives us the escape hatch into, an, in an, into a conversation, you know, which is a conversation about being in relationship with the divine and seeing the divinity in all things. So if we're seeing the divinity in all things and we're aware that our language is what creates that experience and that expression for those around us, then to me, as I have come to understand a sacred story, it's a story that is in support of life thriving, thriving life on this planet. And so now as you sit in that wonderment of, okay, how many sacred stories do I get to experience on a day, in a day? How many of these kinds of stories am I sharing about my life, about my learning with those around me? How do I talk about what's happening in the world through that lens? And it, it takes discipline and practice to speak in this way. 
to tell story in this way and to carry stories that hold this intention and purpose and offer us a way to see this kind of meaning in our life. And I would say that right now we're in a time where our, many of our stories have been hijacked. I would say that stories are being used against us oftentimes to serve marketing consumerism, which is not in relationship to a, a relationship of alignment with the resources on our planet. And I would say that we actually have a lot of zombie stories among us. And so you're like, oh, zombie stories. To me, that is a story that it's made without, without a consciousness or intention to support life thriving. Yeah, I and hear so, that. Yeah. And so it's like you can now, you can, you can, and they're not all made intentionally. And I really want to speak to that because I think a lot of the stories of our time are made without intention. Not, they're made by good people without the awareness or a specific intention and consideration of their impact of their stories on our lives. So think about what is that last TV show that you're watching before you go to bed? And how are you carrying that into your dream time? And how is that affecting unconsciously your perspective on what is possible in the world? What wisdom is coming into your life or not coming into your life because of that? And so I feel like at this time in the world, we have to be so considerate about what we invite into our consciousness to work with. And I'm not saying be blind to the world. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying face it all, look at it all. But you can look at it and say, but who do I invite inside into the internal realm of my consciousness that informs what I, what I value, what I believe, and what I see as possible? On just our last episode, we learned about what it was like to go through the portal with Jackie Pfeiffer. Jackie is a filmmaker and such an amazing light in this world. What an absolute joy to have her with us here on The Spark. Someone was describing the film, it gets described in all sorts of ways, but I didn't intuit the guy and he said it's a film, you know, about global peace, the possibility for global peace, you know, and, and it is. I think we, instead of just being on autopilot and just keep doing the things that we're doing, we do need to create a bit of a space for ourselves that allows us to drop deeper into the experience of what's going on and to think about, you know, think and, and not think about what we're doing, what's important and who we are and how we can contribute and all of those things and to create the space for that. And silence and stillness and all of that, it's its a birthing point, you know, for a lot of newness and potential and, and the creative possibility that exists for us. And so, and which I think allows us to feel when we, when we get a chance to block all the rest of the stuff out, to feel more courageous, to be less identified with what a relationship to, to the external world, to what other people are doing and, and more about what's true to us and that's a place a wellspring of courage that comes in there and so like talking about like trying something new we need to feel courageous to try something new and I think at the moment there's a lot of newness that needs to kind of happen and a rethink and a redesign and a reimagine and so we do need to feel courageous and bold and to take time out from everything else so that we can foster those feelings you know that state within us so and then unleash it on the world it's i mean it's really beautiful and it's essential it's essential isn't it
Your support means the world to us. Hi, it's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member-supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, all of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at noco.fm. Life, love, and synchronicity. These are all the things that I explored with Stephen Post. Stephen is a researcher, public speaker, professor, and a best-selling author. I just love this interview because he's such a great storyteller and what a joy to have on the show. I'm excited to share one of his stories with you now. You know, one of the things that you spoke about too is love being the greatest healer. And so, you know, and I love your give and glow. Yeah. That, that is so perfect. Giving and loving and contributing to the lives of others is the prescription for meaning and at least some degree of happiness in our lives. I yeah. love your prescription for happiness because it's exactly what you were just talking about. As we give of love, right? then, then we are open to this abundance of it already Absolutely. showing up and flowing through us. Totally true. And, and so I call it the giver's glow or sometimes given glow. And so, so, you know, I, I actually had a career. I, I, I was at the University of Pennsylvania in my mid-20s doing immunology stuff. And I quit. And I followed the dream again because I sensed that this wasn't quite right for me. So I went where all <laughs> Route 80 Blue Angel Dreamers need to go. I went to the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. <laughs> which is like the hotbed of world spirituality stuff. And I was able to study there with Mersha Eliade, who'd written the book on shamanism, all the tufts of hair coming out of his ears. Amazing. And, and at the time, a visiting professor with Joseph Campbell. So I was able to sit in the Swift Kick uh, tea, tea shop with Eliade and Campbell. And I told them about the dream. And I told them about the car breaking on Route 80. And about the bridge and Harry and Campbell said, synchronicity, not luck. Eliotta said, is it all synchronicity? And we really talked a lot about those ideas there, but it was so beautiful. But then late, later on, you know, I actually had this incredible moment when I, when I met Sir John Templeton. And um, it, was, it was about 1988 or so. And we met and we were in, a, in the lobby of a hotel. And he, uh, someone introduced us uh, and he, he said, well, sit down and tell me about yourself. And, and somehow the conversation got around this idea of divine love. He was they called him the Tennessee mystic for a good reason. You know, he really believed in this infinite energy. And so I told him the story about the motorcycle and how there's like this field of love between my mom and myself. And she knew that I was in peril. So he had been, he'd been he, he went to Yale and then he'd been a Rhodes Scholar and after that period, he actually took a year and he just traveled the world. And he was in Israel before it was the state of Israel. And he was living in a home and there was a lot of acrimony and division and some violence at the time. And this, this home was surrounded and he thought he was finished. And he was, he, they were able to slip out through an alleyway. And his mom in Winchester, Tennessee, Franklin County, Tennessee, that night, she woke up and she was frightened to death because she knew that John had died 
and she burned all the letters that he had written her. So the whole box full of correspondence, she burned it. And he, of course, you know, he wasn't aware of that because they didn't have cell phones and things, but, but we talked about that. And, and so my whole meet, you know, what happened was, you know, Sir John eventually, and I was, I was sitting in my, in my office at Case Med School and I got a fax from Sir John. He was an older man then. And he said, we need to start an institute to study love, but not just human love, the love that made humans. Love that. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so I faxed back Sir John, what should we call it? And, and he said, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. This, by the way, in answer to a prayer, which is in the book, you know, that I had prayed some years earlier at Harvard um, Memorial Chapel. And I faxed back because I'm around, I'm doing a lot of sciencey things and Alzheimer's and stuff, Alzheimer's genetics. And, and I'm wondering what my colleagues are going to say about this. So I, I faxed back Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism, because altruism, as you know, is a very sciencey kind of a dry term, you know, it's a little safer. So he faxed back, no, unlimited love up to $8.9 million. And I faxed back, Sir John, I just love that language. It jumps right off the page because every, anybody would have done that. But he was <laughs> right because it invited yeah. this conversation with all the spiritual traditions. And that's what we've lacked. And so I've, I, he was so correct. But uh, we started the Institute and, and we were able to, you know, fund like 50 or 60 studies at all these great institutions, including noetics, you know, on sort of, you know, projecting love to a known partner with cancer and so forth. I mean, I mean a lot of that stuff was very palatable to me. And Sir John loved it. Not everybody else did. But we studied a lot of the benefits of being a giver. I and mean, everybody talks about compassion fatigue, and that's a reality. And we do need balance in our lives and those things. But on the other hand, through Sir John, I got to know people like Cicely Saunders, who founded the hospice movement, started the world's first hospice, Jean Vanier, who founded L'Arche. And these people, like you're saying, Stephanie, you know, they had such a sense of divine flow that they were pretty much indefatigable, as far as I could tell. Because they were on, they were on the wave. You know, they were on Rockwell's wave. They were, they were, they were in the halo, and so all they had to do was balance. You know, <laughs> and and because it, it wasn't so much their energy, but they were participating in a divine energy, and that's that's the ultimate reality of the universe of all things. Someone who has influenced my life greatly has been Dr. Larry Dossie. Not only was it such a privilege to have him on the show, he's one of the most internationally influential experts in understanding the role of the mind in health and the role of spirituality in healthcare. Larry was also one of the amazing presenters that came here to Fort Collins in October for the Spark Summit, and his peaceful and loving presence are just an honor to behold. I have profound respect for this individual, and I'm so thrilled to be able to share some of his wisdom with you now. You wrote about the revision of the Golden Rule. How can we revise the Golden Rule to make it make sense? The Golden Rule is expressed in different ways in all of the world's great religious traditions. It just is, just is not uh, confined to the Christian perspective. And we usually express the golden rule as do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is, you know, a very selfish, individualistic, person-oriented sort of attitude. 
I think based on what we know now on the unit, unitary concepts of consciousness that we can upgrade the golden rule to something sort of like this. Be kind to others because in some sense they are you. I mean, this shifts the existential premises. Uh, You're not doing this just to get ahead individually. When you get ahead, everybody else benefits also. And to me, this puts fire in the belly of this whole idea of being kind and loving toward other people. You're not doing this just for you, getting something in return. You're doing it because you are that other person at some deep fundamental level. Beautiful. I, I love that. And I, and I think that's true. I, I do that work with my couples when I say it. the golden rule, you know, in, in that sense, it's not do unto others as they would have done on done unto you. It's do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. But I yes. love it that you take it one step further. And it's like do unto others because we are all each other. We're all a part of this. It's like we're all cells on this universal human body. Well, I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the uh, great philosophers in the uh, 1900s, in in the uh, 19th century, uh, Schopenhauer, said that uh, this is the explanation for why people behave selflessly toward others, even to the extent of putting their lives in danger to save someone else. Uh, This was a, a real challenge to philosophers of his day, because Darwin had come along and said, you know, it's just anti-human common sense to risk your life for somebody who isn't related to you. Our main goal as humans is to perpetuate our own genetics. So it just doesn't make any sense for somebody to risk their life to save somebody else they don't even know and have never heard of. But yet those things happen. So what did they happen? Schopenhauer said that At the decisive moment when the rescuer decides to put his life in danger to save somebody else, at that point, we're seeing something amazing unfold. The rescuer and the individual who's in need have become so entwined that at that moment, their minds have become one. So the rescuer is not trying to save someone else. In essence, he's trying to save himself because their consciousnesses at that point have become fused. This is one of the most dramatic explanations of the one mind idea I think I've ever heard. I've collected uh, stories of uh, people risking their lives to save other people. There's every combination. People risk their life to save animals. Animals risk their life to save people. Animals save animals. And obviously people save people. So there's this idea that consciousness enfolds not just human beings, but it enwraps all of sentient life. And these rescue stories, which span all species in every combination, I think attest to that fact. If you want to change your life, so much of what we have to do is change our mind. I was so thrilled to have this time with Dr. Bruce Lipton, stem cell biologist, author, and presenter. Bruce helps us understand the power of our subconscious mind and the importance 
of learning how to transform our limiting beliefs so that we can truly live the life of our dreams. Bruce is funny and candid and just an amazing mind on this planet. What a great gift to have him on the show. Change is possible. And Dr. Bruce Lipton shows us how. The function of the mind is to create coherence between my beliefs and my reality. So if my belief is I do not deserve, what do you think the function of the mind is? Is to manifest behavior to prove back to me I'm not deserving. I will sabotage myself and then I'll walk around, God, I really thought I could do that, but apparently I, I guess I, I can't do that. I don't deserve this or whatever it is. I say that from when you were five years old, but I don't care because habits have no time. Subconscious is not a linear mechanism. It's just a record program. I do not deserve if I could ask my subconscious, when did you get that program? My subconscious would likely say today. Why? It doesn't know time. So even if it was five years old when the program it was put in, and I'm 50 years old now, subconscious doesn't know that there's time lapsed in there at all. I still do not deserve. And so I had to rewrite that program first to love myself. Why? For a very simple reason. <laughs> the logic of it is overwhelming. If you can't love yourself and someone else says they love you, then you have to go, well, I, they got poor quality control because I know I'm not lovable. What are they? they don't know anything. And then what will I do in this relationship? Unconsciously, I will sabotage it. And then when they leave, guess what I'm going to say? Yep, I didn't deserve that relationship. Yep, I didn't deserve it. And it's like, no, you were the one that killed it, Lipton. <laughs> You're the one that did that. And so uh, the idea is we look at our behavior and the things that don't work for us uh, because 95% of that is subconscious. It's just a reflection of programming, not the universe having any particular grudge against us. The universe, and as quantum physics also stipulates, our consciousness is manifesting as reality. If I have a consciousness of not deserving, then my reality is characterized by not receiving things or not being loved or whatever those programs are. So you can see the manifestation of this in our behavior, in what's going on in our environment. And so that can be really the window for us to start having awareness like, oh, I need to pay attention. This is what's not working in my life. There's probably some roots of some subconscious belief here that I need to yank out so I can change my reality here. I can change my circumstances, my life. Absolutely. You know, and, and this is the difference between placebo and nocebo. This is the difference between a person who has cancer, uh, two people that get cancer, same cancer. But the, here's the difference in the psychology. One of them is programmed with the belief, oh, cancer cells have stupid genes and therefore the cells are stupid and not me, but the damn genes are stupid and the cells stupid. So if I get chemotherapy and radiation, I kill all the stupid cells. I'm going to be healthy again. Okay, the other person knows darn well genes did not cause cancer, but it was a character of lifestyle, not living in harmony. Okay, and when I get the diagnosis of cancer, instead of saying, oh, the cells were stupid, I turn around and go, my life is not in harmony. And if I can change my life, then I can change my, my disease. The answer is absolutely. That's the spontaneous remission that happens. And I go, so what was the difference between two people? 
It's a matter of belief. One says, I'm a victim of stupid cells. The other one says, I have created the cancer. If I'm a victim, I can't do anything about it. Guess what? That person is likely to get the cancer again because they never did anything to st- you know, stop the problem. The other one is the one that changes it. Oh, my God, my life's not in harmony. I have to change the way I respond to this world. And in changing, then they're the ones that are not likely to get the cancer again because it was they that created the cancer. Uh, Oh, when I say that, I know a lot of people just got, I created my own cancer. (laughs) And of course, the first thing your mind is going to go, I wouldn't create cancer. And I go, well, your conscious mind didn't create cancer. Uh, But people, when hearing that there's personal responsibility, this is really important. Once we understand this is we are personally responsible for all the characteristics in our life, a lot of people will turn that right off going, I'm not owning the cancer. I didn't do that. I'm not owning the failure of all my relationships. They did that and all that stuff. And I go, well, here's the problem. People. When hearing the character of self-responsibility, often then connected with shame, guilt, blame, victim. I am a victim of cancer. I, I, I wouldn't create cancer. Shame? No, I wouldn't do this to me. And I go, well, no, you didn't do it. Your subconscious did. But they rejected why? Because of these words are weighted. Victim, blame, blame myself for cancer? I go, okay, let's take these words out of con- out of the dialogue for this reason. Every one of these words, victim, blame, shame, you know, each one of these things represents an important understanding, and that is this. I know there's a correct way to do something, and in spite of that knowledge, I have chosen to do something different. Okay, now I'm responsible. Why? I knew there was a right way, but now I choose not to do it. So that's a matter of choice, blame, victim, shame. That, that's because you chose. But then I go, hey, if you had no awareness of what we're talking about, you're ignorant of this fact, then you cannot be blamed for the outcome. A simple thing, my car is standard shift. And I say, hey, look, take my car to town and get something. And you say, well, I don't know how to drive standard shift. And I say, nah. Just go and take it. And then the car jerking, bucking around. And then I get a phone call from you. Oh, the car's broken. It's not working anymore. Do I have the right to yell at you and blame you for what you stupid idiot? You ruined the clutch. No, I can't do that. Why? You had no knowledge. And therefore, you are not responsible. But, Stephanie, now that we've talked about this, and now the knowledge is sneaking out there then people have to recognize, wait, I have responsibility in this. But before I didn't. But now that I do, then it's responsible upon me to live in a different way, to live with the knowledge of I'm creating this and I'm creating disharmony. And disharmony is what disease is based on. Well, and actually, that's the point of power, Bruce. Yes, it surely is. I mean, that is what's so exciting. You know, when we can absolutely own our entire experience, that's the point of power for us to be able to make substantial change in our lives. That is one of the most wonderful things you've ever said to me, Stephanie, because it's so absolutely true.
Thank you for joining us for this special anniversary issue. What a pleasure to have you here with us and a special thanks to all of my guests, to all the people that were interviewed this year, to all of you listeners who made the sparks truly ignite and a special thanks to my producer, Chris Lamphere. It's been an incredible journey these last two years and truly this show is such a passion for me. Thank you so much for listening and for helping spread the spark. We have an amazing lineup ahead for next year, and I'm so excited to have you continue joining us as we continue to help you really engage in what is meaningful in your life and to help bring clarity, understanding, and hopefully share some wisdom that will help you take your life to the next level. You know, life can be scary and messy, And I think it's just so important that we all know that we are connected and we're all together here on this ride. So I'm looking forward to the continued journey with you. From my heart to yours, thank you so much for being a part of The Spark. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, We'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.